Here with you at Christ Central Worshiping, thank you, Sam. Thank you for sharing your story of God's sheer grace. We're going to turn to the book of Hebrews. This is a book of how not to drift, how not to fall asleep, how not to fall away. And so we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Last week, we heard from a man of conviction and practice in scriptures and prayer. We're going to continue today in Why Church. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, please follow along with me. It'll be projected overhead as well. This is God's word. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word to us so far. Thanks be to God. Scriptures in prayer, Christ central, the church. Want to remind you from last week, these things are not basic. Basic would mean those are things you move on from. Basic is your ABC, and then if you get more advanced or intelligent or mature, you go on to other things. None of these things are basic. They are foundational, foundational. Just as Christ must be central, just as scriptures and prayer must be central, here in this passage it tells us, don't dare try to do this alone. Don't dare try to be solo, an individual believer. We must do it together. I like how the Hebrews author says, it's actually become a habit of some. He says, don't neglect getting together, but it's become a habit of some, a habit. You know, you just miss a Sunday here and there. Anytime there's a three-day weekend, anytime it's easy to get away, just miss a little Sunday here and there, and all of a sudden you start to realize that's about once a month, and then twice a month, casual, it's comfortable, seems like a harmless habit. And I assure you from all my mega church friends, it is a very common habit. But the Hebrews author warns us, listen close, if that becomes habitual in your life, it actually can very much lead to losing your faith altogether, spiritual ruin, and even apostasy according to this letter. Don't let this become a habit. I've got four excuses that we may use. I've heard it. I've even said it. You've said it. I'm your pastor. I love you. But these are four common excuses that people use from the church. Excusing myself from the church. Here's first. I don't actually want to commit to a church, a local church, especially every Sunday, just in case I've got better things to do. I don't want to commit just in case. I want to leave my options open. I mean, isn't this the signs of our times, right? It takes us longer to choose a movie on Netflix than to actually watch a movie. I don't want to commit. Ah, Here in Southern California, too many things to do. Beautiful beaches. We have Hollywood. We got San Diego. We have Santa Barbara. We have Las Vegas. 
Some of you have sports tournaments, sports games you got to watch or play. Some of you have been in a video game all night bender. You're hung over from video games right now. Thank you for making it. Some of you want to work out, do extra work. Some of you want to sleep in. You name it. Southern California has every diversion, every other kind of attraction that's going to make your commitment difficult. Can I also speak to my family, friends? Vacations are great. They're the gift of God. I've been convicted recently how much more and regular and intentional I need to be with my family, especially as my daughters grow so fast and they might leave our home so soon. But you know that when you're on vacation, you do know you're not on vacation from Christ. Like you can go and enjoy all your vacations. Please go elsewhere. But you're not on vacation from the orders and the kingdom and the love and the will of Christ for you. Please seek a church to worship in. This non-committal attitude, this casual, gradual, non-committal attitude can become habitual. Where once it was abnormal to miss church, now it's normal. It used to be exceptional to miss church, but now it's regular. It's the norm. Please, the authors of Hebrews says, knowing the state of your soul better than mine, do not neglect meeting together. Don't let this become a habit. Because I'll tell you one thing, just in the church life, in my own soul, if you examine your own hearts very well, a lot of us overestimate the short term. You put too much pressure. You're impatient about the short term. What am I going to do with my life in the next three or five years? But everyone in this room, you underestimate the long term. The long term. You and your wives and your children and your friends, give it 10 years, just drift. 10 years, make it casual. 10 years, not have a commitment. I know what will happen to you. The scriptures tell us. This is the first excuse. Here's a second excuse. I've been so hurt by the church. I've been so turned off by the church. And this one's deep and it's very real. Some of you have been abused by the church. Power plays, manipulation, deception, scandals, maybe even touched in inappropriate ways. Of course you'd be turned off by the church. I'd be too. And this might be one of the most prevalent excuses why our friends and neighbors don't want to ever step foot in a church. Because of stories of hurt. There's one of the most well-credentialed pedigrees guys that I know. He preached here several years ago by the name of Dr. Paul Lim. He's a professor of history over at Vanderbilt University. You can go on YouTube and you'll find his story of grace of how he converted from an atheist to a Christian. At age nine, his dad was incarcerated, thrown in prison in South Korea, falsely. At age 15, he immigrated to the United States. And if you're a teenager, and if you're an immigrant, and you want to fit in with language and culture, it's a very painful experience. Well, his mom just insisted and forced him to go to church. So he went to a youth group over there somewhere, I think it was in Delaware. And that youth group at a church offered three B's every Friday night. Bible study, Burger King, and then bowling. Bible study, Burger King, and bowling. Dr. Paul Lim, as a young man, had no interest in the scriptures, but he said actually that first part was his favorite part. 
Do you know why? Because in Bible study, at least you're forced to sit all together. When they headed over to Burger King, he found himself eating alone. He said just consistently, no one would come and talk to him. Maybe he didn't wear the right clothes. He had trouble with English. And he said, you know how traumatic and painful that is? Then he even got worse at bowling. He said, there's probably no worse experience in life than bowling alone. He would bowl alone. And he would pray on Fridays that they would at least have an even number of youth students so that someone would be forced to bowl with him. And in his story of grace, he would talk about how that pain, how that hurt, closed him off from anything to do with the Bible and Jesus Christ and the church. Friends, listen close, listen close. Dr. Paul Lim has a towering intellect. He's an overpowering figure in academia. He considers himself an academic missionary now. But do you know what he confessed? He said, so often, more than not, than intellectual objections of why people don't want to join a church, it has so much to do with social and relational hurt. Social and relational hurt. Friends, can I talk to you at Christ Central? I don't think we're really good at this part. I'm not saying we can fix all the hurt, but are you sensitive to and are you intentional about welcoming and trying to heal and cover over hurt? When I heard that conversion story, it was way too close to home. I was definitely one of those second generation jerks who could care less about someone else who showed up at our church back in youth group. I repented again. And I ask of you, there are excuses of our friends and neighbors that actually get in the way and blockade them from even being exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what they are? First is noncommittal. And second is a story of hurt. Here's third, a third excuse, very common. Well, you know, past, right? I got in a church here and there, and those people there are like no different from me and my other pagan non-church friends. In fact, some of them are worse. And you're right, there's no excuse. If all the people of a church are actually worse than non-believers, we need to exercise leadership and discipline and care. That is not acceptable. But do you, you do understand that, again, you're making a rule out of the exceptions. You find a couple hypocrites. You find a couple people that turned you off. You just find a couple who aren't even really involved. And say, oh, they're all like that, so I just want to stay out of it. You know, in other words, here's what you're saying is, Obviously, you don't want to go to church because of the hypocrites in there. And you yourself, of course, you're not like that. You're not as weak or struggling and needy as that. You're not as inconsistent as that. You know, sometimes social media is helpful. Sometimes these memes are spot on. I think it was attributed to Kevin Hart, but I don't think Kevin Hart said this. Not going to church because of hypocrites is like not going to a gym because you see out of shape people there. Not going and committing to a church because of hypocrites, out of shape spiritual people. It's like, well, I'm never going to work out at a gym and get in shape because I see out of, shape, out of shape people there too. Here's a fourth excuse. A fourth excuse. Pastor, not only am I turned off by the hypocrites, my greatest problem is you have no idea what mess I'm into right now. 
You have no idea, Pastor. Like nobody at your church knows exactly. I mean, if they knew the things I have done or the things I'm into right now, what I'm going through at home, what I did at my business, there's no way they could welcome me in. I don't have much to bring or give. My friend, can I tell you, you've got church all flipped upside down, what church is supposed to be? Did you know that God formed and created and gave his church to be a gift? It's supposed to be a gift. God is much more concerned not in expecting and demanding the gifts that you bring of your own, Church exists because God wants to spread the table, give you the bread and the cup, speak words of life, and he wants to share all his bountiful, abundant gifts with you. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right here in our passage, love and good works and encouragement. What does God want to do in his church? He wants to actually bestow gifts, gifted people. We're going to vote upon five men, five men. Vote for them because they are gifts to you. Do not vote for them if they are not gifts, if they're not godly gifts for the church. Elders Brian and Kevin and myself are wide open this week. Please do not fear. We welcome any feedback, any concern, so we can continue to pray together as a congregation so that elders, leaders, shepherds, and pastors, they're called to be gifts for the church. I've never met somebody in my life if I invited him to a party, and that party was run by a really wealthy human being, and that person is prone to give away free gifts, I've never met someone who doesn't want to go in an Ellen DeGeneres show during the season where you know she's going to give away free gifts. Nobody is disinterested then. What do you think the church of Jesus Christ is for? And even through the ordinary, broken, stuttering means, the lips of a very poor speaker, maybe the song wasn't done perfectly well. Maybe the bread in the cup, maybe the bread was stale. Do you know that over the long run, these are the absolute divine, supernatural gifts where God is coming to serve you and give you what you need on a weekly basis? Oh, to Apostle Peter, Jesus said and promised in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, on you, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and not even the gates of Hades will prevail over it. Do you know what Jesus promised? Here's what he declared. There is no other club, no other business, no other corporation, no government, no movement, no power, no identity, no belonging you could have. That will outlast, outdo, and outmatter the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing can compete with the church of Jesus Christ. This is why we pray for our brothers and sisters right now with state power, the Chinese government, the communist government. Why do you think they are so intentional in trying to kill off churches and Christians? Oh, because they know. They know that, bottle, that battle's offsided. I think they even instinctively know deep in their hearts who's going to win at the end. The church of Jesus Christ. Don't excuse yourself from it. Now, as grand and powerful and as eternal as the church of Jesus Christ is, my friends here at Christ Central, 
We're not going to experience any of that, though, if we don't function like a church that God wants. None of these lofty supernatural things are actually going to be experienced if we don't function like a biblical church. Three dysfunctional churches. Three types of dysfunctional churches. Real quick. First is church as a place. It's a place. If you think Christ Central Church meets at Hope International University and this is only where church happens, well, then, then that means you're in church once or twice a week. The rest of the time of the week you are not at church. Not at church. If it's a physical building or location, sometimes you're in it, sometimes you're not. You see, you can take times off. Bono, the lead singer of you too, made this observation. Religion is the temple after God has left it. If you think it's a physical building or church, you're misconceiving what church is. Second dysfunction. Church is a club. Church is a club. A club is a social, voluntary organization. You can join it or leave it at any time. A club is joined by people just like you and basically surrounded by people you like. That's a club. Clubs never, or, and they should never, define who you are. But when God invites you into his church, it's supposed to transcend and startle any other group on the face of the planet. God invites you into his church. It is supposed to define you and reprogram you inside out. God wants his church to be more than a group of cliques. I do know we have cliques. Not trying to be critical about that. Naturally, you gravitate toward. We want small groups to go deeper. We want you to be intimate and have well-trusted friends. But once again, though, if you understand that it's a dysfunctional church that is content with just staying like a club, are people noticing that Christ Central is more than a club? And if we're intentional in breaking through cliquishness, comforts, social circles, in welcoming and functioning like a biblical church, I assure you, my friend, to that degree, we will experience the very presence and power of God. Church is not a place. Church is not a club. It's not supposed to be. And third dysfunction, church is therapy. Therapy. It has become quite popular normal now that to be spiritual or even join the church of Jesus Christ does not mean you have to repent or surrender or change anything. It's come as you are, then stay as you are. But always the gospel, Jesus, when he says and invites you and loves you, come as you are, because he loves you so much, he will never, never allow you to stay as you are. But church's therapy expects exactly that. A secular writer, observer in Newsweek, about a decade ago, he once observed the rise of lots of big, big mega churches with huge buildings and campuses with coffee shops inside and jungle rooms for the kids and wall climbing and everything in your church. Quote, some of the least demanding churches are now in the greatest demand. Some of the least demanding churches are now in the greatest demand. Any church that never calls for repentance and, sur and surrender to Jesus Christ actually can't change or comfort you for good. And if church and Christianity for you is just something therapeutic, that's all it means for you. It's just got to make you feel better instantaneously. Can I ask you, what you've settled for is something that spiritual consumers want. Church's therapy places fits in with spiritual consumers, but it will never fit into the kingdom of God. So what is church? 
Well, all of that was just a setup, excuses and dysfunctions. So what is church and why? How precious is the church? Why is it so vital? Oh, St. Cyprian in the third century of Carthage once famously declared, outside the church, there is no salvation. Outside the church of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. Listen, we will freak out at that statement. It sounds so foreign today, right? But that's because we're just so used to making rules out of the exceptions. We're just talking ordinarily, yes. Usually, yes. Most of the time, yes. 95% of the time. This is how it works. What is church? Oh, here's how Apostle Paul describes it. He gives us and paints us three pictures, three images in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read four verses, verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Three images of what the church really is. First, citizens. Citizens. We're a nation. Second, household of Jesus Christ, a family of Jesus Christ. Citizens, family. And they're right there, concentric, right there in the middle, the bullseye, which is what a church is progressing and aiming to become. What is it? A temple, building blocks, being built together, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, growing up in the Lord. Each image, citizens, family, temple. Do you notice the increase of intimacy? The increase of connectedness, right? Family members, brothers and sisters are much more closer than fellow Americans with an American passport. But even closer are building blocks of a, of a physical structure, of a temple, the actual bricks or wood or concrete plastered together. They're not going anywhere. They're actually literally stuck together. And they're growing together as a holy temple of the Lord. So there's an increase of intimacy with each image. Here's a question I'd like you to consider. What is God like in each image? What role does God play in each picture of a church? Well, over a nation, of course, God is like an emperor or a president or a king over his citizens. In a family, God is like a father for you. Citizens, God is like a president over you. In a family, he's a father for you. What is God like in a temple? In the building that's growing up in the Lord? It actually told us the Holy Spirit is in you, lives in you. Now I want you to just put those two movements together. I want you to put the two movements together and you will find what Apostle Paul is trying to convey. As you and I 
get connected to and closer and closer and closer and closer to one another, as you and I get stickier and more intimate and more connected to the very people of God, God is moving in closer to you. As you and I get closer and closer to one another, intimacy is being deepened. This is where God, you will find, is getting so intimate and close and real and maybe even palpable and life-changing with you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a book entitled Life Together, he once confessed, for by himself, he cannot help himself, for the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Your pastor, one of your preachers right now, cannot tell you enough how much this is true. The weakest, most mumbling, most ineffective, uninspiring voice of the gospel into Harold's own heart is my own sermons. I do not exaggerate. I only listen and review them to constructively critique, hopefully get better. I am so tired of my own voice. I can predict what I'm going to say. Go figure, right? It's redundant. But you bring me any brother or sister who shows up on Sunday mornings to set up, who's volunteering with our kids, who's out in the parking lot making sure people are parking safe. I visit a small group and I hear the things that you went through that week. We hear stories of grace. I cannot begin to tell you how exponentially more powerful and blessed it is to hear the word of the gospel come out the word out of the mouths of my brothers and sisters here, uh, brothers and sisters here at Christ Central. My faith has literally survived and been strengthened over and over and over and over and over and over again because the closer I get to you, God is getting and moving in closer to me. There's no one individual or one little click here that can identify, experience all the attributes of God. That's why you need one another. I have certain friends who are enormously, enormously regular, self-controlled, and disciplined. I need that because I'm not like that. I have other friends I rub up against. They have enormous bravery and strength, but they're consistently gentle. Consistently gentle. I have people who have poise and peace in such stressful situations. I don't even know how they do it. I have older pastors that we have seen who have endured, endured, endured. They joke, I felt like I wanted to quit once a week, but they still go at it in 30 years. Endurance, resilience. God is far too rich, far too multidimensional, far too majestic and beautiful for you to think, oh, I can go at this Christian life alone and figure it all out by myself. Only as we move from citizens to family and temple building blocks, God himself moves closer to you. Now, I know here in Los Angeles, there's no center city. There's no core. But community means coming together in unity. Question, does Jesus Christ and his gospel have enough power to form community across a scattered, lonely landscape of Los Angeles? Yes, he can. It's called church. And he's been doing it very, very well. The most feasible, practical way here at Christ Central where you can experience this intimacy and connectiveness is to join a small group 
or a discipleship group. Discipleship groups are just a little bit more study intensive, but this is the most practical bread and butter way. It's ordinarily the way that if you want the reality and the presence and the intimacy and the power of God to be in your life, you get it through his very people. Let me close with this. Just the fourth angle. How should we answer this question, why church, for generation next, who's asking this question more than ever? It's by way of application, is it not? How should we answer this question, why church, for our children and children's children who are asking this question more than ever? Our culture today is radical individualism relativism, hedonism, totally post-Christian. So if you don't know by now, they're going to ask the question, why church? I count it that I'm really fortunate enough, I started off as a college intern pastor up in NorCal. I don't know how many years ago. And then to this day, I still get invited to these collegiate events. They just maybe need one old guy there. And I really enjoy it. Do you know what I found tried and true? It's an absolute principle. It's never changed. I could bank on it. I'd actually throw my life on it. I would wager a life on it right here. If you ask me the question, Pastor, how do I, uh, how do I ensure that Christian faith and life is passed on to the next generation? How do I ensure that? I would say it's this simple. 18-year-old adults who choose to and get plugged into a biblical church on their own. That simple. When they become adults, will they choose and value and have the answers to why church and get plugged into a biblically functioning church? Most of those who get plugged into church will grow and flourish in the faith And then most of those who do not get plugged into church, at least maybe for some time, will fall away. That simple. It all depends upon church life. Now here's the not so simple part. Here's the not so simple part. Your children, my children, and our precious beautiful children of Christ Central, they are all gathering data And they're taking all their cues from you and me. The not so simple part is that all our children, covenantal children, I'm not talking about biological children. If you care about the next generation, how will they continue to flourish in the faith and follow after Christ hard? Well, they're taking their cues from you and me. Is worship priority for you? You know they can tell. Is Sunday worship, you learning anything? Is there anything meaningful? Is there any follow-up, any reaction, any words after the Sunday service? You know they can tell. Is it something impactful? Is it something enjoyable? Is it a priority? Does church look, feel, smell like it's a gift from God? When we allow continually hobbies, sports, recreations, 
just take a day off. When you let that become the norm, we are training and teaching our kids that you should follow Christ and only go to church when it's convenient and it fits into your schedule. We are instinctively teaching and training, actually passing along something that's very different from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us, pick up your cross and deny yourself, even though it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. Do you know how important the very body and people of God are? All our children are taking their cues from you and from me. My dad, since I was born, I was basically born into a church. My dad went to church all his life, every Sunday. And it was in early junior high, though, that God decided to perform a miracle. My dad, who attended church all his life, in early junior high, he actually became a Christian. God took a hold of his heart, wrecked it, remade it over a weekend revival. Do you know how, as a son, I could tell something happened? My dad stopped talking to me about Harvard. And he actually started to talk to me about his struggles with holiness. My dad actually started becoming vulnerable and open with sins that he wrestled with. My dad, for the first time I could remember, opened up a Bible at home. And not only wanted to read it, but wanted to talk about it with me. My dad began to pray every morning or night. I could see him kneeling on his bed. That is the indelible mark upon my conscience. And my dad turned around to love his wife and his kids better than most men I've ever met. All by the grace of God. Now, from that moment, I don't need a sales pitch anymore about church. Nobody has to come to me and tell me the importance and the value and the power of the church of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, you and I are going to find the answer to why church when you look at Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus Christ. Do you look at Jesus Christ? Hey friends, the sleepy ones right now, the indifferent ones, the non-committal, half foot, half out, you're not sure if you're going to join anything or serve anything. I'm glad you're here. But do you know why you're indifferent? Do you know why you're avoiding? Do you know why you're neglecting? You might even just be outright hardened and hostile toward the very people of God. Do you know why you do that? Because you're not really looking at Jesus. You're not really looking at Jesus. You may say you're looking at Jesus, but you're not really looking at Jesus. Because if you're really looking at Jesus, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a man who moved out of his safe, intimate community. He entered into ours. And he loved these people called the church so much, despite all her excuses, all her dysfunctions, all her distractions, and all her sins. Jesus loved his bride. He loved the church so much, he gave up his life for her when nobody else could or would. That's the love of Jesus Christ for his church. That he would give up his life for her. I love going to weddings when I don't have to officiate them. I went to two. It's so relaxing. Yeah, it must be nice. <laughs> you know, Sunday worship services must be nice when you don't know you can just sit there. Oh, it's so relaxing. <laughs> Chicago, my stepbrother got married. 
Yesterday, an old friend of ours from Christ Central, Shin, Shin, the whole time I was like, there is a God for sure. I can't believe God brought someone from, anyways, they got married in Fullerton. And what's, what's the essence of a marriage ceremony? What's the most important part? When the bride and groom face one another and they pronounce crazy future promising vows. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, I will love you and be true to you and not change, even though everything changes. That's the vows. But let me ask you this. If you are facing your future wife or your husband, and somebody hit a crystal ball, or someone could show you a movie that is accurate in predicting the future, and you knew that your future husband or wife is going to cheat on you. You knew your future husband or wife is going to wreck you. You knew your future husband or wife is going to ruin your income, health, and reputation. You knew your future husband or wife would repeatedly, repeatedly break your heart. How many of you in this room would go through with that marriage? According to Apostle Paul, Jesus did. Jesus did. He took me and he saw into Harold's heart and he saw his life. And Jesus knew. Oh, oh this one. This one is going to be so treacherous, so adulterous, so prideful, so stubborn. So weak, so blind. And then Apostle Paul says, but like a husband, he still married the most unfaithful, unclean, most unworthy, undeserving wife to cleanse her with the power of his word and shed his blood for her. Such is the love of Jesus Christ. And that's why there's a church. Church is just a group of people who can never get over his love. Church is a group of people who don't ever want to get over his love. That's why we sing to him. That's why we pray to him. That's why we want to learn from him. That's why we become like him. And that's why we want to invite many, many more friends and family to him. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the power of your spirit. And now I ask God that you would make us see, feel, view, behave, act, pray toward your church a little more like the way you view and see and pray and gave yourself up for the church. Jesus, make us more like you with your very people together for your glory, and to heal hurts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.